When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everybody, I am Lucia Matuonto and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. From Tacoma, Washington, we are talking to Charlie Sheldon. Charlie is retired after working at sea and in seaports for over 30 years. He's also the author of the Strong Heart book series. So Charlie, welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Charlie. So you have a master's degree in wildlife biology before working as a commercial fisherman. So how did your interest in wildlife begin? Uh, well, my father was a wildlife biologist also, and his father was a naturalist who liked the woods and animals. So when I grew up, He'd been in wildlife biology. I actually didn't intend to study wildlife biology, but mm-hmm. ended up doing so because I found I wasn't in, that interested in it as a kid. But then when I grew into my older years, I became more interested. So then I studied it in graduate school. Oh, when did you realize you wanted to work at sea and for seaports? Uh, I, well, I always was fascinated with the ocean and boats even as a kid, (laughs) the way I started was Mm -hmm. kind of of funny. I I was bartending on a place called Cape Cod one summer after I'd graduated from college for a summer job, and I didn't like it very much. And so I saw these fishing boats coming into a port up in the town of Chatham, and I just thought, oh, I want to do that. But that was hard to get on one. It took me days of pestering people to get on one. But I finally got on a boat, and once I got over being seasick, I found I kind of liked it. And so that's what I did summers when I was in graduate school, and then I chose to do it full-time for a few years. So could you explain uh, to us what working for seaports entails? Well, you can have many different jobs working for seaports. I, I fished for a number of years and worked in that industry for about 15 years. And then I went to work for the port of New York and New Jersey because they were trying to reconvert a steamship terminal into a place to land fish. And it didn't work out very well, but it was a complicated project. So when you work for seaports, I've done many things. I've been a planner most of the time. When I've worked for seaports, I've been what they call a project manager, construction manager. I've been working on projects to rebuild things or build new 
terminals and piers and so on. And later on, I became a, uh, an executive with seaports, which I didn't like very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's too political. But, uh, you know, over 30 years, I've worked in a number of different jobs. One consistent thing I did, though, for most of those years, except the first five, was ended up working with uh, Indian tribes on negotiating agreements between the tribal fishermen and the ports because they'd fish in, uh, they'd fish right in the port where the ships were coming and going, and it was very complicated. And so we needed agreements with the the two or three tribes that had fishing rights there. And that was the most interesting part of my work, quite honestly, of all the work I did. I believe it was kind of difficult to communicate with them. How did you manage to like find a solution when you were having some problems, for example? Basically, the, the tribes in Washington State and in some other states, but mainly in Washington State, They have rights under the treaties that were signed with the tribes in the 1850s, rights to fish and hunt. And that's federal law. That's a treaty obligation. Mm-hmm. And then in, in about 1975, the Supreme, the Supreme Court or a major federal judge made a decision that basically in, endorsed the tribal rights to half the fish in Puget Sound and in Washington State. And the tribes had that authority. And then what happened was every time a port wanted to build anything near or on the water, they had to get a permit from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which oversees water and water development. And the Corps of Engineers would not give a permit to the developer or the port unless the tribe agreed because every development you did in the water took away some area that otherwise they could fish on or in. So their power was we had to get them to agree to let us build a wharf extension, for example. And they, they wanted in exchange for that permission, um, some kind of money or some kind of agreement on rebuilding habitat upstream. Uh, so it was a complicated negotiation every time. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. And what brought you, Charlie, to Pacific Northwest in 1990? When my father was out of college, the first job he had was out in the Northwest in the logging woods, uh, working as a logger, and he loved it. And he did it for two or three years. And then his sisters became ill and he had to go back to Vermont. And when I grew up, I kept hearing about the Northwest and the logging woods. And um, so I always wanted to be out here. And then I came out here many, many years ago and drove through Washington State and wanted then to go to the Olympic National Park, which was out in the peninsula. But I couldn't do it then. But it always sat with me. So when I had an opportunity to take, you know, to take a job out in Washington State, I jumped at it and took it. You worked with Puget Sound, which you explore in your Strong Heart book series. Can you please explain to us the background behind Bering Land Bridge? Okay. So for the last two million years, there have been periods when the earth is 
had ice ages when the ice has grown and covered much of the northern hemisphere. And it's the reason that happens is a little unclear. It has to do with the positions of the Earth and the Sun and some other things. But for the last two million years, there's been an ice age about every hundred thousand years. And for 80 to 90,000 of those hundred thousand years, the weather's been much colder than it is today, for example, because today we're in between the last ice age and the next ice age, if there is a next ice age. And so every time there's an ice age, which means when the snow doesn't melt and the water builds up on the land, the sea level drops. And when the sea level drops 100 or 200 feet, that exposes a plane of land between Siberia and Alaska that's, you know, 150 miles wide. Mm-hmm. It's like a flat plane. And that's called, that was called the Bering Land Bridge. And when that was exposed, which it was at least 20 times over 2 million years, animals could go back and forth if they could get beyond some of the ice. And so could people. And so the land bridge is considered to be the way the first humans got to the North America and South America. That's one theory. Mm-hmm. You know, when there was an ice age and those sea levels was lower, people could then cross on the land. Uh, and and uh, the last time the land bridge was exposed was about uh, 20 to 12,000 years ago. And yeah, and you are strong heart series centers around a 13-year-old Sarah Corley. So who was the inspiration behind this character, Charlie? Well, there was <laughs> an interesting question. When I started, started thinking about writing a book, I wanted to have one of the storylines be a coming of age issue with a teenage kid who was a troubled kid. And the reason I was interested in that was I'd met a number of troubled kids through my own sons, right? And uh, they often had very difficult life experiences. Some of them were runaways and, you know, it was very difficult, but I always admired their courage and persistence and resilience. And one of one of those kids who was a friend of one of my boys was a young girl and and um, she really had a hard time but she got through it okay and she wasn't really the model for my character sarah cooley but really what i wanted to do was write a coming of age story set in the olympic park about this question of how the first people got here but i wanted the hero to be a young girl not a young boy. And uh, also, uh, Charlie, I saw that you've been writing for 55 years, which is a long time. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Where do you find your inspiration? That's a tough question to answer. Uh, I've always wanted to do it. I've always done it. you're a little driven to do it, I think. I haven't done it. I don't do it every day. I don't even do it. Sometimes I'll go a few years between writing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you when you're, when you're working, it's very, very hard 
to write and work and provide for your family, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it's hard to do it. Okay. I've done it, but it's the process of how you find time to actually write is a big challenge. But um, I get ideas. The first two or three books, I, I always wanted to write books, novels, for some reason. The first two or three books I wrote started with a, they were very light. It was just started with a question, you know, kind of a stupid question. And then I'd write a book about it. There was, there was, I didn't want to do anything serious or ask any deeper questions. I just wanted to tell a story mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and they told the story and their books were okay. But these last series of books, I've been trying to deal with more, I guess, weighty issues, you know, you know, what, what is it that makes us human? You know, how do you find your strength and power? What, it, what does family mean? You know, how do you wrestle between challenges of development and preservation? You know, what's the meaning of wilderness? So I think it's partly an illness to have to write, but it's also great fun when you watch the story appear. It's a good feeling, a, a feeling of... I, I finished the book because I know many people that start and they never finished writing a book. It's hard. <laughs> it's, it's not easy. It's not. Uh, and, and different people do it differently. All right. I mean, some people will do outlines and they'll do background research for characters and other people don't do outlines. I don't do outlines, but when, when, when I've written books, I, I, and I've written eight or nine novels now, the, the, when I write the book, the first draft, I usually write within the first draft within three to five months. Every day I'll write a bunch, right? Mm -hmm. And then I've got a first draft and it's oftentimes no good, but at least it's a finished first draft. And then it takes me three years to get it right. Yeah, it, I, I started writing a book like three years ago. It was missing only maybe two or three chapters. And I, I stopped. I don't know. I don't feel like I'm like start writing the same story again, like at least yeah. it. But maybe one day I will. Well, it's the, the difference in my mind, the difference between the book I wrote before the Strongheart series, the last new book I wrote, was written in the late 1990s. Okay. And I ended up doing a bunch of research for that book because it was a story about a hijacked container ship. And, and I had to learn a lot about the business of security and containers. So I did some research. But when I did this Strongheart series of books, I had this vague idea that I wanted to do something about the Olympic National Park and about the legend most Native American tribes have that they've always been here, that they didn't come over on the land bridge. They've always been here, mm -hmm. which of course is very different than current theory about where humans arose. And I was curious about that. You know, could that old legend be true? And if so, how could it be true? So I ended up doing a lot of research starting in, I, I thought about the book for 20 years, generally, right? Just this vague idea of a story. 
And all these years I was working with the tribes and maybe learning a little bit about how the tribes functioned and worked uh, and getting to know some of the people in the tribes and trying to understand a little bit about, you know, what they, they think about the history. And then, then I started doing research and I'd, I'd taken a job. I left the port of Seattle where I'd been working. I took a job up in the port of Bellingham, which was a, <laughs> it was a doomed job from the beginning because I knew I wasn't going to get along with a couple of the commissioners up there, but I took it because I needed a job. And, but I, but I was, my wife had just found a job in the Kate on in Seattle after a few years of not finding work. And so I took an apartment up in Bellingham and during the week I went up there to work and I had some time at night, you know, when I wasn't at meetings and stuff. So I started doing research there about this story and I did two years of research and filled up notebooks about the ice ages and human development and legends and myth and, and weather and, you know, how people use boats and ancient times. And then that job ended and I went back to sea and I took my notebooks with me thinking I'd write, but of course you don't have time to do anything when you're working on a ship, <laughs> none. But when you're on a ship, when you're not on a ship, you're not working, you're home for a month or two. And so uh, after I'd done two or three years of research, then when I started to write the book, it was easy to write the book. The characters just appeared, I think, because in all that time of doing research, something happens in your brain and things and connections get made you're not even aware of. And when you actually start writing, it just kind of comes out. But that's the way it felt to me anyway. Uh -huh. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at what what do you would you say is your favorite part of writing? I'd say the favorite part of it is watching it appear and the wonderful surprise when something jumps into your story you had no idea was there. <laughs> you know, I the way I write and different people do it differently. And if I had six bestsellers, people would listen to me, but I don't. So they don't. That's okay. okay. But the way I write is I write what I see. If I can't see it in my mind, almost like a movie, then I can't write it. So I write what I see. And I know I'm imagining it, but I write what I see. And a couple times in these stories, as I've been writing what I've seen, something's jumped into the story that was a total surprise to me. Mm -hmm. and, and I had to deal with it. Like, for example, in the first book, Strongheart, which is the start of the series, this ornery 13-year-old girl shows up at a grandfather's door, and he doesn't even know he has a granddaughter. He's about to go camping with his friends. They take her with him because there's nowhere else they can place her right they have to take her with them mm -hmm. she's really unhappy to be out there in the woods doesn't know anything about it they're not very happy to have her with them because she's difficult 
-hmm. and she but she likes to draw sketches right and so she wanders off the second night they're out up the trail and then when she comes back she's got a funny expression on her face and they sh she shows this drawing to the people she's hiking with and, and she's drawn a bear this big bear jumped into the story i didn't know the bear was there uh -huh. and so she she draws this bear and they they look at the bear and they say oh that's a that's a good drawing sarah but it it's not really correct it doesn't really look like a the bears in this park which are black bears and you know they don't know what it is and finally one of the one of the people looks at the drawing closely and says well actually what she drew was the short-faced bear mm -hmm. and the short-faced bear went extinct twelve thousand years ago <laughs> wow so that's how it starts right she uh -huh. sees something that can't exist uh-huh yeah. And then they don't believe her, right? They don't believe her. And then two days later, she disappears. And uh, that's the that's the first story. Uh, that's so, like, when I write sometimes, I don't know how my book will end. I start usually right. by the, I don't know about you, I started with the characters first. What, for you, what comes first? Is characters or plot? I think the basic frame, you have, you have some notion of what you want to do. I did anyway. Like the first couple of books I did, the first scene popped into my mind with the characters. Then I wrote the first scene and then I had to write a whole book to untangle myself from the first, first scene. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's not a good way to write a book, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, I think in the case of this series, which started, by the way, as one book and then turned into a series of three, which was a surprise also. But I had this vague idea. I knew I wanted an ornery kid. I knew I wanted something with coming of age. I had to be in the park. You know, I wanted to have some magic realism in it, which is a big part of these impossible animals. And, and, uh, I, I just started one, and the, the way I started was sort of interesting. I, I got back, I went to sea on a, on a ship, and I was gone for 200 days on a voyage back and forth between Singapore and New York, 70-day round, 70 round trips, did three of them. And I got back, and I had all this notebooks and all this information, and I thought, if I'm serious about writing this book, I need to take a writing class and just just to force myself to learn something about writing. So I signed up for a, a writing class at the University of Washington, an evening class. Mm -hmm. The timing worked for me. And I, I went into that class. And the, as we, the, we, the first night, the teacher said, okay, the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is spend 10 minutes writing something. And I started writing and, and what I wrote almost without a change, and those 10 minutes was the first three or four pages of the first book, Strongheart. That's when I started it in wow. that writing class. Just kept at it. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's impressive. And Charlie, I always choose a quote for my guests. And I chose one for you. It's from Walt Whitman. And he says, to me, the sea is a continual miracle. 
the fishes that swim, the rocks, the motion of the waves, the ships with men in them. What stranger miracles are there? So what do you think about it? Well, it, Walt Whitman is one of the greatest poets there is. It's a very appropriate quote. I mean, I like that quote. There's, I, I, I try to, and, and actually the second book in my series, which is called Adrift, is a total sea story. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a complete sea story. The first one, Strongheart, and the third one, Totem, are more set in the wilderness, in the forest and mountains. So I kind of like both equally, you know, the sea and the mountains, so. And Charlie, what's next for you after this series? Are you planning to write or publishing more books? I actually, in January, I started, I actually I've got it right here, a notebook. I've started a notebook on an, another series. I thought I was only going to do one book, okay? Mm -hmm. But when I started the first book, I had a different frame than the book you would now read. And the frame was, I had a bunch of people cast ashore from a lifeboat. And while they were waiting for rescue, one of them told this long story about what had happened the previous summer, right? Mm -hmm. And it was a structure a little bit like the way Conrad did Heart of Darkness, where they all went out to wait for the tide and heard the story about the jungles in Africa. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, you know, that's a complicated story structure. And it was a longer story than I knew would work in the market at the time. So what I did was I stripped away the sections about being cast ashore on an island and just told the story the guy told, right? That's the first book, Strongheart. But I had 70 pages of this other story. <laughs> yeah. These guys are cast ashore on the island. And I'm thinking, well, how did they get cast ashore? And what happened to them? So anyway, I finished the first book, Strongheart, and the following spring, Again, I went to Cleveland, Ohio to work on a project with a shipping line there. And I was again, had time. So I started writing another book, starting with this ship fire in the Gulf of Alaska, leading to this lifeboat being cast ashore. So that was the second book. I, I had these two books. And then the third book wraps up everything from the first two books. It's the following summer. So it ends up being a series, which I didn't expect it to be, but I like the structure of a series. And so now I have in mind another series, but this one, unlike the book, the books you have, or I'm talking about here, which are really set in the present day with some visions or dreams or experiences in the very, very ancient past. The next series I want to do is I want to have it a hundred years out in the future, sort of a science fiction story linked to some of the stuff within the first series, not the same characters, mm -hmm. but some of the same stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but this one set out, say, around the year 2100, um, when Sarah Cooley, who was in this series as a 13 and 14 year old girl, is now 95 or 100 years old. Wow. And 
And it's what what her great grandchildren run into that becomes the next series. Mm -hmm. Wow! So she will be in the three books, but uh, in the end she will be uh, like almost a hundred years old and like wow. <laughs> and well, that part of that is is because the, I guess I'd say the. One of the theories in all the stuff that I do is that it's the telling of stories that was what made us human, modern humans. The ability to tell stories, to build a culture with memory and genealogy and history and learning, right? Until we could tell stories, I don't think we could be modern humans, right? And so... In my books, Sarah, you know, it goes back to great grandmothers and people who are 110 years old and stories they tell. And that'll, I think that's been the truth for humans ever since the beginning of time. And I don't see it would change. So 100 years from now, when she's still around, but a very, very old woman, mm -hmm. she tells her grand, great grandchildren a little, little bit of her story and they get really curious. And that curiosity takes them on another adventure, only that adventure has to do with exoplanets that are habitable, that are 10 light years away, and missions to see them. And <laughs> anyway, mm -hmm. we'll see. <laughs> Where can our listeners find your Strong Heart series? The books, the Strong Heart series of books are published by a publisher called Iron Twine Press. Strongheart was published in 2017, Adrift in 2018, and Totem, the third book, is coming out at the end of October this year. So October 29th, 2021. So people can pre-order it even today if they want. It's available on Amazon, also in other booksellers, you know, retail booksellers. You can get, you'll go to Barnes and Noble and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, they're available as well as eBooks. Uh, Strongheart and Adrift are available through Kindle, and uh, um, the Totem will be available through Kindle. Additionally, I have an audiobook of Strongheart that's available that you can also uh, find uh, on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And and anyone, if anyone's interested in any of these stories, they could just go to a bookstore. I'd encourage them to go to a bookstore, and I doubt the book will be carried in a bookstore because there's not much room on the bookshelves but they can ask the bookstore to order the book and they can get the book in a few days. And then they're helping support the bookstore and, and they're getting a book, which would be wonderful. And you have any website or social? I, I do. I have a website that's uh, it's simple to remember. It's Charlie Sheldon 2 with an I-E, C-H-A-R-L-I-E-S-H-E-L-D-O-N and the number 2.com. And on that website is information about my books. You can read previews of the books. There's a bunch of blog posts about human origins and the Olympic National Park and some other things that I'm interested in. <laughs> you know, And I just posted something today, as a matter of fact, about that amazing volcanic eruption in Iceland, which is just unbelievable. And, and uh, so... That's the web page. And then I'm also, there's also a Facebook page called the, 
the Strong Heart series where I, I post some information as well about. I hope our listeners can check out your website or Amazon, give a look at your books and maybe to get it. <laughs> well, I hope so. And if they, if, if they, you know, if they Google my name, Charlie Sheldon, I think links come up for the books and they have a couple of other books up that, that are available as well. Earlier books that are one about the fishing industry and one about really about another coming of age story, but really about the sport of rowing, which I did many years ago as a, as it was a passion. Actually, actually. Charlie, thank you very much for participating on the Relatable Voice podcast. Come back when you have another book. <laughs> we'll okay. Happy. Okay, I will, Lucia. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening and remember... Relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time.